So this morning, if you, if you want to grab a Bible, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 10. That's where we're at. And as you're doing that, if you didn't uh, bring a Bible, don't worry about it. Just grab one in the pew in front of you. And once I get there, I'll tell you what page number it is. 1007. So if that's, if that's where you want to be, if you want to kind of follow along right with where I'm at. I want to start out this morning talking a little bit more about, I talked about this a few weeks ago. This is, um, a, a, this is a little book uh, called Life Together. Has anybody ever read this book? Ever seen this book? Ever heard of this book? No one. Okay, this is a, little, a great little book. You should think about picking up and reading it. This is, um, this is written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whose name you might have heard of. But he, uh, he wrote this little book about what it's like to live with other Christians. There's some funny little bits where he complains and hear about how bad the singing is, which um, happens when I lead singing, which is why I never lead singing here. Uh, he wrote this little great book, and this is, this is during uh, the, the rise of Adolf Hitler. Uh, this is a gathering of the seminary. Here's Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself as he gathers uh, with this group who, he, who will end up in ministry in churches. It was held in secret. They kept it quiet um, because uh, a number of these men were taken, uh, once it was found out who they were and what they were saying, uh, were taken off to concentration camps as well. But he wrote this great little book about what it, how important it is uh, for us to live in community for what a gift it is to be a part of a people, a people called church. And he says this, he says, It is true, of course, um, sorry. It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. Here he's speaking about being in community, having people around you. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us, that the time that still separates us from utter loneliness may be brief indeed. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. I found that to be a particularly beautiful passage. Um, I'm troubled by how little time we want to spend together and how much time we want to spend with other people at football games or soccer games or arcades. They don't have arcades anymore. Wherever it is that we spend time with people, I am troubled by how, how it is po- like pulling teeth to draw Christians together. And I, I, I say this to you as a brother in Christ, not as, uh, as a minister. I, I actually genuinely like y'all. I like being with you. I like being around you. I love potlucks. I love standing around drinking coffee. I just love being with you. And... I think that there is something that binds us together that is so much richer and deeper and, of course, more eternal than any of the other things that gathers people together. And there are lots of things. There's all kinds of reasons that people gather together. But the gathering together because of the power and presence 
of Christ and the shared confession of his name. It's so much deeper and more beautiful. And if this text and this sermon has anything both of encouragement and of conviction to lay on you, it is this, that you love one another more deeply. The text of our scripture, text of our scripture from uh, Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 19, says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart full of the assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The word of the Lord. Nobody remembered. That's all right. That was, that was many months ago. I love this text. I love this text because to me it is slightly morbid. And um, I, did anybody pick up on the morbid morbidity there? It's a very strange little thing that he says here. And so I've got to give you a little background, a little, little history. And many of you will already know this, but if you're new to church or maybe you're not as familiar with the Old Testament, that's okay. The Bible's a big book. There's a severe learning curve, so it's all right. But at the time of Jesus and at the time of the writing of even probably this letter, there was, oh, this temple here. This was where the Jews would go and, and worship. This is what it looked like or thereabouts. And inside of this temple here, there was a large curtain. So there's two rooms. There's one large, inter- and then toward the back, it is separated by a curtain here. And this curtain, according to some of the traditions, was about 60 feet long. Strike that, reverse it. 60 feet high, 30 feet long, which is a big curtain. Four inches thick. In fact, some of the stories which are probably exaggerated were that it it took 300 priests to haul the uh, curtain back, just enough so that the high priest once a year could could go and enter into that holy place. And and the way that it worked was that God had said to his people long before this temple was built, um, in the original tabernacle, back in the times of Moses, that, that he would dwell in the midst of his people by dwelling in the inner spot, in the holy of holies is, the, is what they called it. And so this was this one time a year where the priest could kind of slide in and be in the presence of God and then leave again. And so there was very much a barrier, a literal barrier, a thick wall, a wall that's, that's so heavy it takes 300 priests to pull back. I mean, that's a big deal. And so when Jesus dies... One of the texts from the gospel says that the temple veil, that's speaking of that curtain, is torn in two. Think of the power it would have taken to tear something that big in two. And here we have Hebrews drawing on both this Old Testament tradition, this thing that they know about, and this story about what happens after Jesus dies and rises from the grave, this, the temple veil being torn in two, and that is that there is now a new and living way that has been opened, but opened through what, the text says, through Jesus' flesh. 
flesh curtain. That long, that for ages past, there was a barrier between us and God. But now there's an open door. I talked a few weeks ago about how powerful it is to say that when we read in the scriptures a depiction of where God dwells, where is God at? God is always pictured not in a throne room, not in like a royal court, but rather in a temple. That God, wherever God is, we use the word heaven just as a catch-all, that's where God is. In heaven, God is in a, a temple, And think about the power of that metaphor and how different it is from a throne room. A throne room is a place where a king sits on a dais and pronounces judgment, where he declares wars, where he he, he, uh, speaks with his counselors as they discuss how they might impose their rule on someone else. That there is deep stratification in a throne room where you have the king and you have his right hand man and then kind of down the way and everybody's trying to climb the ladder so they can get to the next position. Not so. In a temple. Not so in a temple. Something altogether different. A temple is not a place where you go to receive judgment. It's a place where you go to receive mercy. It's a place where you go to entreat God. God, have mercy upon me. And where God responds to that by offering it. It is not a place of war and political intrigue. It is a place of mercy. It's a place where everyone has a place, as it were, that there is a community. Even the high priest, and this is what's so significant about Jesus's humanity, being both fully God and fully man. It's so important because Jesus calls himself our brother. There's a sense in which he himself is shared. So everyone within a temple, aside from God, is on the same level They're all there to receive forgiveness. They're all there to receive mercy. It's a powerful, a powerful thing. And now that door, which before had been closed to the people, was only open to the high priest only once a year and only after he had gone through countless numbers of rituals. And after 300 priests pull that curtain back, now the priest can go in. All of that is done away with, and there is a door, and that door is Jesus. And you can draw close to God through him. This has several, I think, deep and important things that we could pull out and think about. The first would be the exclusivity of all of this. You'll notice that there are no fire exits. It's a modern invention. There are no fire exits. There is one door into that temple. And if you want to go into the presence of God, there is one curtain that you have to go through. I was listening to uh, some conversations this week between um, uh, some Orthodox uh, Christians and uh, some uh, sort of Universalists, like, you know, all the roads lead to uh, up the mountain. And yet, this is not what Jesus says. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. You might remember from John chapter 10, he says, I am the door. Like, if you want to go into, pres- into the presence of God, you have to go through me. Jesus says that I am the gate. The sheep come through me. If they go through, if they, if they hop the wall another way, then they're a thief, they're a liar. And if somebody says to you, hey, listen, there's a fire exit on that side. Maybe if we scale the wall and we pop at the top, we cut a hole and we can drop down like Mission Impossible style, they're lying to you. They're lying to you. There is one door. And so this is, a, this is a plea and a call to you today. If you are a Christian who has been wandering away from God, I want to call you to remember your confession of faith. Remember your baptism. 
Remember when you said Jesus Christ is Lord. Remember when you heard the words, I am the way, I am the truth, but I am also the life. And I call you to remember it. And to take up again that way of life. And if you aren't a Christian here today, I plead with you to hear these words. There is no other avenue to God. There is no other way for the forgiveness of sins. There is no other door. There's no other way. Jesus alone. And that is an incredible revelation of the grace of God. Because God could have left that curtain closed. But he chose instead to open the curtain through the flesh of his own son. So that you and I might walk through into the presence of God. That we might have, what does it say in the text? Full assurance. No fear. Go into the presence of God. The, The text as we have read through, as we've been moving through Hebrews, gives us uh, all kinds of metaphors about, about who Jesus is. Calls him the son of God. Calls Jesus the king. Calls Jesus the high priest. Says that Jesus is the sacrifice. The sacrificial lamb that, 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 that allows us in. Calls him the mediator of the covenant. Calls him the curtain by which we go. Th- which one is he? He's all of them and so much more. So much more. And if all of these things about Jesus are true, if all of this is God reaching down into our brokenness to draw us to him, what kind of confidence should we have to go to God? You should have a full assurance of faith. You should be able to draw near to God. And so I want to encourage you that... I was trying to think of an illustration uh, that would do this well, and I couldn't think of a good one. Other than um, my daughter gets to invite people into my house. And she gets to point people to the fridge and say, hey, have some food. And you have the confidence to get into the fridge because the daughter has allowed you into it. I mean, we have all these metaphors that we could bring up. You'd think about if the vice president grabbed you by the shoulder and said, hey, why don't you come and visit the Oval Office with me? I mean, you have confidence, not because you're great, you're not. You have confidence because the person who is allowed into that, into that inner sanctum has said to you, hey, come with me, and you have confidence in that person, in them. We have confidence in Jesus to enter into the holy place, not because we are great, not because we are perfect, not because we are lovely, but because Christ is all those things, and he says to you, come with me. Come with me. So many Christians are laden with guilt from the past. Maybe I'm speaking to you today. Remembering mistakes, remembering shame. I know so many Christians who carry around the question, am I worthy? Am I good enough? And the answer to those questions is no. But by the same token, Jesus has grabbed you by the shoulder and said to you, come with me. Isn't that what Jesus, isn't that what Jesus said? I have come that you would have freedom. He says, I, I, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may also be. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He doesn't want Christians who are constantly downplaying their ability to go before God. He wants Christians who are bold, who say, not because of me, but because of Jesus. And I will go to the Father and I will ask of him and I will entreat him and I will thank him and I will praise him and I will exhort him even though I know that I'm a sinner saved by grace. We need that kind of bravery and confidence, not in you, but in Jesus. 
And so the text tells us to have this, this sense of full assurance of faith. You should be confident. And that should lead you in this next verse, verse 23, which follows directly. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. If we read forward a little bit, we would see that these Christians have come under deep persecution. The Bible, the text here talks a little bit about their property being plundered, about them being in prison. It exhorts the church to remember those who are in prison, which isn't to say that, you know, the prison ministry then wasn't the same now. It was that other believers had been put into jail for their faith. And he says to them, you can have confidence that that. Jesus will see you through for he is faithful. See all that he is. See all that he does, has done. Can you imagine him abandoning you now? Though your property's been plundered, though you've had family thrown into prison, no, hold fast to your confession of faith. And if the author of Hebrews can say such confident things about people going through deep persecution, how much more your troubles, your money problems, your family squabbles, your depression. I'm not saying these are small things, but they aren't quite the same as being plundered and thrown in jail, right? And if they can have such confidence in God, how much more confidence can we have? We can have such incredible and deep confidence that we hold fast to this confession of faith, this belief that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that he has come to redeem sinners like you and like me. And so the text continues here. And I think that this is the point. Verse 24. Frequently this is, by the way, frequently this is the the point of of the letters. If you notice all of the letters in the New Testament, um, I just read through them recently uh, over the past week. And uh, you'll notice uh, similarities in all of them. And all of them have the same thing. And that is, there's a kind of a theological discussion about what God has done for his people. And frequently that's where we get caught up. We, we, we're like, oh, God is good. God is great. You know, look at what he's done here and there and everywhere. It's kind of Dr. Susie, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, but the point is that trajectory toward the end where the author, whether it's Paul or the author of Hebrews or even Peter or John, gets to the point where they say, okay, now how do we live How do we live? In light of God's great grace, in the light of the curtain that has been made in the flesh of Jesus so that you and I can walk with confidence, with full assurance of faith into the presence of God, how should I live now? Should I just shake God's hand and say, great to be here, thanks, go on. No, he says, hold fast to that confession of faith, but immediately, what does he get to? He gets to Christian community. And every single text of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, always gets to Christian community. It has always been about God drawing people together and drawing them into his presence together. It is never about you and God. You will never be in the temple alone. You know that? The Bible, every image of God with someone else is God with people. The only exception is Moses on the mountain. 
Otherwise, this vision of God coming in is always the people of God being, and God in the midst of his people. He says, let us consider, and I'll just kind of bullet point them for you here. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good deeds. This is an interesting word. It actually only appears in one other place in Scripture. It's Acts 15. And in Acts 15, there's a story of a fight between Paul and Barnabas. And this is the word that's used here in Greek. That this word is the disagreement that breaks them up. It's a very interesting thing, isn't it? It's almost as if he was watching football yesterday. Make like a Michigan destroying Spartans joke. I won't do that. I'm sorry, Chuck. This is an interesting word, and I pondered over this word for a bit. What does it mean to provoke one another? Like this would be, generally speaking, a negative thought. The only other place it's a, neg- it's a disagreement, it's a fight. You are supposed to be, I think the idea then is that we are supposed to be so zealous, ardent, in our desire to be together to do love and good works, that it creates a kind of intensity, the like of which can only be described as a huge fight. You ever had a few huge fight? Any married people? Huge fights? Plates, cups, names, saucers, things that you've been holding on for 10 years, you've been waiting for the moment, and you finally drop that nuclear warhead Right? I mean, like that, that level of intensity is here. Provoke one another to love and to good work. Are we that interested in loving one another? Are we that interested in good works? And, and I submit to you, it, it's not that you aren't. I think every, I, I know almost everyone here, you are a people of deep love and deep compassion. And if I said, hey, I know person X who needs help, you would say, well, I'm coming with you. I know, I know because I've asked many of you for different things or I've seen you on your own conspiring together to go and help someone and I love it, it's beautiful. But if we were together more often, imagine how much more we could do. If we're all plugged into something, a small group, a Bible study, some, imagine how much more you would know about. And if you, the, the intensity of that was, hey, how can we love each other more and how can we do more good works together? Imagine what could emerge out of this little church. Of course, he gets to the point there in verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Obviously, the idea of community, if you want to do love and good deeds, they they have to happen within a body of believers. And I'll give you one practical reason for it, one good reason why this week I encourage you not to do a good thing or a nice thing by yourself. Because we all know a nice person, don't we? Don't you? No nice person. Somebody like, they don't go to church, but they do nice things. Maybe they give to cancer research. Maybe they, you know, the, the person next door doesn't go to church anywhere, but he'll mow your lawn or shovel your sidewalk. Anybody got like that? Anybody near you? And you say to yourself, what? Well, that's a nice person. That's a nice person. But if you have three people who show up to do that, and they say to you, 
we're from Oakland Drive Christian Church. We just, I, so-and-so lives next door to you, said they, you needed some help with your roof or whatever. Raking your leaves, tis the season, right? And they show up and they begin to do it together. Suddenly it becomes something that they see as an act of love and good works done by church. We use that word too often, obviously, and we've, uh, every preacher I've ever known harps on this, and I will continue the tradition. Uh, this is not a church, this is a building. Y'all are church. It's not a noun of place, it's a noun of being. Where two or three are gathered, their church is. And God is present in that mix. And so I encourage you this week, practically thinking about, as we imagine, or as we remember all of the great things that God has done to to lay before us so great a salvation, it should lead us not to just say thank you, God, but should lead us to provoke one another, to not neglect meeting together, and to encourage each other. Can I confess to you? Everyone says yes, and then it ends up on the internet. Uh, as I was singing, um, what, was the, what was the song? What was the second song? What was the next one? Revelation song. I think it was Revelation song. Revelation song. I was singing along with Revelation song, and then I remembered how mad I was at somebody. And I thought about that for about three stanzas. And then I thought about somebody else who had wronged me recently. And I was not thinking about God at all. And it was all of my effort in that moment to like smack myself and say, you're supposed to be singing to God. Is it anybody else ever? I mean, not today, of course. You are far too holy for that to have happened today. I understand. And I was... Uh, I was um, I was reading in the scriptures, as I was reading through the letters, uh, how often it struck me, how often it talks about the purity of our speech, the kind of things that we say about people. And I badmouthed someone to Randy, first thing this morning. I mean, I read about it, I've been thinking about it, this actually is a part of my doctoral work, I was thinking about a chapter that would actually be about a chapter in my dissertation about purity of speech. And I badmouth so I like Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this often we combat our evil thoughts most effectively if we absolutely refuse to allow them to be expressed in words. It is certain that the spirit of self justification can be overcome only by the spirit of grace. I am struck by how difficult it is for us to encourage one another and how easy it is for us to insult one another, to drag each other down, how quickly we are to type, to post, to comment, to speak with Randy when he's standing outside in the foyer, venting our frustrations, how easy it is. And yet the text of Scripture says, this beautiful, beautiful text 
And, and of course, this is a crescendo text. John here is, this is a crescendo text. All up to this point, if we had time, we would have just stood here and we'd have acted out or read, read through this text throughout Hebrews so we could see all of the grace, all the power, all the things we, we talked about that God has done in Jesus Christ to open up this door, this new and living way. And then he says, okay, now, that's all well and good, but if it doesn't translate into you being a community that lives a new kind of life, then... It's actually not done anything. The point of all of it is to create a people who stir one another up to love and good deeds, who meet together regularly to make that happen, and who are encouraging one another. He says, encourage one another and all the more. I mean, this was written, what, 2,000 years ago? Or the past 2,000 years, have we gotten better at encouraging one another? Let's, let's, let's make a dent in that, shall we? Let's, can we do that? Make a dent in that this week? I mean, if, if, I, if I leave you here, leave you, if you leave here today with one practical thing, let me, let me give you that one practical thing. It's a very, very practical thing. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making best use of the time because these days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't medicate the day by getting drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled instead with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for him. That's the kind of people God is building. That's the kind of people, if you can imagine all of us standing in the presence of God, imagine God on the stage and we're all here together. What sort of words would you use? What sort of things would you be about? What sort of, what sort of activities would you plan together if God was in your, in your presence and and he is. He is. So then let us, with confidence and boldness and the full assurance of faith, enter into the presence of God together and provoke one another to love and good deeds and to, courage and to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Let's stand and sing this last song.